1994, a, di- a long-distance Italian runner named Mauro Prosperi got lost in the Sahara Desert during a six-day-long endurance race. A uh, sandstorm had uh, made him dazed and confused and disoriented, and he got lost during the race. And for nine days, he walked through the Saharan Desert, having to eat bats and insects and reptiles. For fluid, he was forced to drink his own urine, lick dew off of rocks, and suck moisture out of his wet wipes. He did eventually find a small village, and from there he was flown to a hospital where doctors said his liver had almost completely failed. Having traveled 180 miles in total, Prosperi lost 35 pounds in body weight, and it took several months before he could eat solid foods again. Although he did remain an enthusiastic runner, and he actually returned and completed that race in 2012. Prosperi managed to survive for nine days in the wilderness, Anybody who knows anything about me knows that I would have died during those nine days in the wilderness. Um, I think maybe if I was forced to do it, I could eat bats and drink my own urine, but I'm not sure I could catch the bats. I don't know how he managed to do that. Uh, Anyone who knows me knows I'm just not much of an outdoorsy person. Uh, I do love the outdoors, but I've just never had much of an interest to be in them growing up, and so I am totally helpless. If you ever get stranded in the wilderness with me, I can teach you how to say your final prayers. That's about as helpful as I can be. I definitely would die in the wilderness. What we're going to find today is that David and his men have found themselves in survival mode. David and his men are being forced into the wilderness, and they are now surviving out in the elements. But I think that as we read the text the Lord has for us today, we're going to find that his physical circumstances are sort of a picture of, of his, of his spiritual and emotional circumstances. In other words, David has found himself trying to survive two different wildernesses. Physical wildernesses, but also sometimes the more, spir- the more difficult wilderness are the spiritual ones. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23? 1 Samuel chapter 23, this is a long chapter, but we are going to read the whole thing together. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Beginning in verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah. I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. When Abiathar, the son of Himelech, had fled to David to Kilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. 
Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hekilah? which is the south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and he who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Our text begins with an Israelite city under Philistine attack. The city of Kilah is under attack by the Philistines, and we are specifically told that the, they are attacking the threshing floors. The threshing floors were, the, were, these, were these big spaces where the grain and the wheat would be laid down so that the oxen could tread it. And so essentially what we have here is that uh, most likely the uh, Philistines were robbing them of food and cattle. And I'm sure there was some lives lost in the process. So David hears about his fellow Israelites, his brothers and his sisters who are in danger, who are being attacked. And so like a good shepherd, like a good king, he wants to go down and he wants to avenge them. He wants to defend them, but he knows this is risky. He doesn't have an army with him. He has 600 Israelite ingrates, people who are just upset with Saul and left. He doesn't, he doesn't have an army. And so he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord gives him a command. You go down and you attack. Now, but what's interesting is that there was a lot of, from a worldly perspective, this really wasn't, this didn't seem like great military strategy. And David's men made sure that they let him know that. 
Like, you must have, you know, the, the priest brought the ephod, and I understand the ephod has the urim and thummim, and that's how we consult God, but you must have misread the stones, because there's no way God actually wants us to go to Kyla. We're afraid here. How, how much worse do you think it's going to be fighting off the Philistines? And, and this makes some sense. I mean, let's think about it for a minute. David, does, David is currently on the run. Right? David is not leading an army that attacks and fights battles. He's leading an army that's running away from battle. His men are essentially saying, if we were equipped to fight, we wouldn't be running from Saul, we'd be fighting Saul. But we are not equipped to fight, that's why we're running from Saul, and yet here's what you want to do. You want to take us to go to wage war against the Philistines. This ragtag militia who's on the run from another army, you want to take us into the Philistine to fight that army while we're running from this army. We're not prepared for this. And so David, maybe you're right, so he consults God again, and this time God is gentle with him, he, he's patient, he reminds him, no, I'm telling you, you go and fight, I will give them into your hands. I will give them into your hands. Oh, and by the way, there was another thing that uh, made this very, very risky. Notice what um, Saul says in verse 7 when he hears that David went to Kilah. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Uh, the word kyla comes from the Hebrew word where we get our word citadel. And a citadel is any kind of city or structure that's built for defense, that's walled in or caved in, like castles or fortified cities or forts. These are like citadels. Kyla is like a citadel because even though it's an Israelite city, Geographically, it actually lies well beyond the border of Israel and into Philistine land. So Kila is an Israelite city that's sort of behind enemy lines. And so you can imagine the only way they're going to survive in that kind of environment is if they have a well-fortified city. So they have essentially blocked Kila in. And so this is an, another really poor military strategy on David's part. And Saul knows it. Because what happens when David goes into this little metal cave to free Kyla. The problem with this fortified city is there's only one way in and only one way out. So they go in and they risk their lives, they risk their energy to fight off a Philistine army, and if they even win, and that's a big if, if they even win, Saul's army has now closed them in. There's no way to go. There's nowhere to hide. This is really, really poor military strategy. But David trusts the word of the Lord. God has told me he has promised me, so I'm going to ignore the human circumstances. I'm going to ignore the human reasoning, and I'm going to obey my God. And so they go down to Kyla, and they save Kyla. And then David has this idea, well, this is a fortified city. I'm the savior of these people. Why don't we just set up camp here? Like, let's make this home base for the new Israel, right? But the Lord reveals to David, ah, that's not such a good idea um, because Saul's coming to get you. And then David thinks, well, I mean, I just saved Kyla. Of course, they're probably on my team right now, right? I'm their savior. So why don't I just fight back with all of Kyla? So the Lord tells them, yeah, they're planning on surrendering you. They're not your friend. Now, why would Kyla betray their rescuer? I don't know. My best guess is that word has gotten out about what Saul did to the priests. I think word has already gotten around town of how brutal and savage Saul is. And so I think they're afraid of Saul. 
And so God knows the hearts of the people of Kyla, and he knows that they are prepared. They don't want to mess with Saul. They're going to betray David. So David says, okay, Kyla, it's not our stronghold. So they leave. Saul gets word of that, and so Saul stops looking for David and goes home. As they leave, they are pushed further to the southeast into the wilderness of Ziph and eventually into Maon. This is very, very hostile physical territory, but there is a small town there, Ziph. And like Kyla, the Ziphites also decide to betray David. They send one of their messengers to Gebeah say, hey, we've seen David and his army and our land, you should come and get him. And Saul says, I know your land, it's rugged mountain terrain. I'm really not interested in, in looking for this small army, taking my men on the big mountain trip. You know, remember how, how long did it take the United States of America to find Osama bin Laden? Right? It's, it's, it's really hard to find people in vast territory filled with mountains and caves. Right? I, I don't really feel like looking. So once you guys know exactly where he is, let me know and then I'll come get him. And so one of the people who know the territory well, they find David's army, they tell Saul. And so now Saul is pursuing David and he gets close. They end up on the same mountain. They can see each other and David is panicked. David is hurrying away. And at the last moment, at the very last moment, a messenger shows up. Philistines, somehow they must have known that you took our entire army out of Gibeah, out of the land, to come on this goose chase in the mountains. And they've now attacked and there's, there's nobody. So Saul has to immediately retreat. Right on the cusp of capturing David, he has to immediately retreat and go back and fight the Philistines. And, and we can't help but wonder how much David's success in fleeing from Saul in this moment, not just from the messenger, but came from Jonathan. Because what happened in the middle of these two betrayals? David, who's in a very difficult position, he find, Jonathan finds him. And Jonathan brings an encouraging word, and he strengthens David's heart in the Lord. So David and his men are now in the wilderness, and what they've done now is they've gone even further to the east to the hostile deserts of the En Gedi. They basically end up on the beaches of the Dead Sea, which is nice because now they have a body of water, so this isn't a terrible stronghold for them, but they're basically hanging out in the desert. So David and his men, and this has been one of the repeated themes of this chapter, are being pushed further and further into the wilderness. They go into the wilderness of Ziph, and then they go into the wilderness of Maon, and then they have to go to the hot deserts of the Engedi. They are living in hostile territory. One commentator described it this way, saying that David was gradually retreating further into the precipitous, deserted hills to the southeast of Hebron, describing these, this hillside country as inhospitable and little frequented lands. David and his men are being pushed into the wilderness. But as we have seen, what's really their primary concern? It's not just the physical wilderness. It's not just their homelessness, but it's their circumstances. This wilderness of circumstances, if you will. David is sort of going through two survival situations right now, both physical and spiritual. And so here's what we're going to do today. As I told you, I really cannot be of much help to you in physical survival circumstances. I'm not the guy for that. But by the grace of God, because of 1 Samuel 23, I think I can be of some help today in helping us get through our spiritual wildernesses. And I'm not just talking about seasons of life that are particularly hard. I'm talking about the entire Christian existence. 
Because it is the Apostle Peter who describes the whole Christian church as people who are sojourners in a world that is not our home. The entire story of God from redemption to glorification is a pilgrimage church, a church on pilgrimage, a church sojourning in a world that is not their home. The entire Christian life is essentially one of trying to survive in the wilderness. Trying to survive in a a hostile world where all around us is sin and sickness and death and evil. We live in a hostile, inhospitable spiritual environment. And God has called us to pilgrimage here. He has called us to journey here. And so we need help. We need resources. How can we possibly survive the wilderness? How can we make it out of here alive? You'll notice if you were to go on a camping trip and you wanted to be, you know, prepared for uh, emergency circumstances, there are a lot of resources available online. You can obviously buy first aid kits. You can get first aid training. Uh, but you can even buy little survival packs. Like Amazon has these really cheap survival packs that come with like, it's a little tiny bag, but it's amazing how much stuff comes out of that. And it's got like knives and fire starting kits and little blankets that keep you warm. And you can buy these little survival packs. And you can even buy survival like handbooks, survival guides. So if you ever do get lost and you're in the wilderness, you can pull out and this gives you helpful advice of how to find north and how to find a body of water and how to make a fire. Survival guides. So that's kind of what the sermon is today. It's a three-point spiritual survival guide. How do we as Christians survive as we wander in the wilderness of this side of eternity? This is kind of a three-tooled survival guide. The first survival technique that I am offering for you to survive the wilderness is to obey God's word. Obey the word of God. Look with me again at verses two through four. After David heard of what was happening in Kilah, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. This verse was so refreshing when I first read it. So far throughout 1 Samuel, we've been really chronicling Saul as king. And do you know how long it's been since we've read anything like the king of Israel inquiring of the Lord? David's world is, is, he's in a difficult spot and he doesn't know what to do. And what's his first instinct? What does God have to say about this subject? What would God have me do in this situation? The first thing David does, he inquires of the Lord. Lord, give me your commandments. I want to live by your word. I want to live by your law. I want to obey you. And my favorite part about it, my favorite part about it was that as we briefly already discussed, from a worldly perspective, you could argue that David made the wrong decision. It didn't seem to make sense. It didn't seem wise. It it didn't seem prudent. They were heading into a trap. They were unprepared for this. There were so many logical, reasonable reasonable arguments they could have tried to make to convince David to do one thing, but David was firm. No, the Lord has spoken. If we want to make it out here, we cannot wholly trust on our own instincts, follow our hearts. I need a word from God. 
Even when it seems counterintuitive, even when it seems uncomfortable, I obey God's word no matter what. And by the way, this is actually similar to surviving in the wilderness carnally. Sometimes, one of the things I'm amazed whenever I see like movies of survival stories or, or I, I, I read about real life survival stories, I'm amazed at how often survival techniques can be totally counterintuitive to me. Like sometimes the things that keep you alive are the things that I would think it would be the exact opposite. Let me just, just give you one example. Uh, whenever I would grow up and I would watch survival movies, especially if they're like in the mountains or in the winters and there's a lot of snow, it never made sense. I always saw people melting the snow and, and drinking it. And I thought, what a waste of time and energy. Snow is clean. It's not salt water. So if you're thirsty, eat the snow. Like, right? If you're trapped in the wilderness and you're thirsty and there's snow everywhere, glory to God, you've got fresh water all around you. Eat the snow. That's what I would do. But I came to find out that that will actually kill you very quickly. The snow is so cold, your body, when you eat it, has to heat up. Your body has to use a ton of energy to heat it up, to melt it down in order to consume it all the way. So you actually burn way more calories and sweat far more than you would have had you actually warmed the snow up, melted it, and drank it. So if you're ever lost in the wilderness, don't eat the snow. You need to melt it and you need to drink it. But that seemed counterintuitive to me. It just seemed, right, to me, my natural instinct was, I'm thirsty, here's some snow, doesn't look like an animal's urinated here, so I'm going to eat it. Don't do that. It's counterintuitive. David's, the word of God seemed counterintuitive. Wait, he wants us to go to Kyla? It doesn't make sense to me, but it doesn't have to make sense. When we have a word from God, if we want to make it, we need to obey him. We need to trust in his word. David learned this, and that's why he says in the Psalms, I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. David knows when I'm a stranger, when I'm lost, when I'm a sojourner, what do I need to fix my path? I need the commandments of the Lord. That's why he also says in the same psalm, O Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When we're lost in the wilderness, we need light. We need to know the right path, and that's what the word of God is. If you want to survive in the wilderness, obey the word of the Lord. There's a second survival technique we get from the text, though. We not only obey God, the second thing we learn is we need to commune with the saints. You need the communion of the saints if you want to survive in the wilderness. One of the things I learned in my studies this week is that most often in a survival situation, typically the people who don't make it, the people who die, they died first and foremost because the elements conquered their will not their body. In almost anything I read where it compared why did this person survive and this person didn't, it wasn't because the elements just killed one person faster. The elements will take away someone's will to live and then they give up and then the elements kill them. One of the most important things in surviving in the wilderness is maintaining a will to live. That's why the United States Air Force has a pocket survival handbook and throughout this little survival handbook, it repeatedly notes that you're, in order to survive, your, your psychological health and your will to live are often far more important factors than physical preparedness. We need a will to live. 
And one other example I get before I tie this to the text, I was amazed one of the things I saw online was, was like a build your own survival pack. If you're going to go camping, here are some things you should be prepared to have in case things go wrong. And you know what was interesting? One of the items they recommended putting in your little survival pack. And you can't use your phone because your phone battery dies. It has to be a hard copy photo of your family. One of the most important things you can have when you're lost in the wilderness is a picture of your family because you're going to need a will to live. Eventually, dying becomes easier than living. And you need something to motivate you, something to encourage you. And this is exactly the role that Jonathan gave David in this text. David, he goes down. I mean, can you imagine how discouraged? Remember, he just fled from the priests and then Saul killed all of them. He fled from Gath. He's now gone down and saved Kyla against all odds. And then they betray him. And now he's in the mountains. You can only imagine David's, pro he, David's probably thinking, my luck's got to run out eventually. Like, at some point, isn't this just easier just to give in? But in the middle of our text, sandwiched right in the middle of the text, is Jonathan. Look again with me at verses 16 through 18. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. How vital, how crucial was this moment for David? To have a brother find him and tell him, do not fear. It's going to be okay. This is what we call the communion of saints. We cannot survive in the wilderness alone. We can't make it. We will run out of the will to live. We will run out of our motivation to keep going. We need people around us to encourage us, to help us, to push us to persevere. We need faithful brothers and sisters. Keep your marker here, but turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Many people will often tell you the context of the book of Hebrews is a warning against falling away. It's a warning against giving up and dying in the wilderness. But I think a better way of thinking about it is it's an exhortation not to fall away because trickled throughout are ways that help us to remain and to persevere. And we have one of those ways here in chapter 3. Look at verse 12 with me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, uh, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So sandwich in this text about don't fall away is exhort one another daily so that you will not be hardened. So what is he telling us? The exhortation, the encouragement of our fellow saints is a crucial, crucial tool for us to not grow, to be deceived and grow calloused in our hearts. 
If you don't want to fall away, then you need brothers and sisters in your life to regularly exhort you. And notice, we're going to look at a text that's talking about Sunday, but this one says every day. We have to keep in mind that your Christian health is not just dependent upon coming to church every Sunday, although it is. Your Christian health is dependent upon regular time with the people of God. We need to work hard, especially in our busy environment. I know I I don't do a good job at it with a newborn son and a lot of business going around, but we need to work hard to spend time with one another, to exhort one another. If the day is called today, it's a day we need to be exhorted. We need to be encouraged. We need the communion of saints if we're going to survive in the wilderness. Notice this theme is throughout the book. Turn again to chapter 10 and look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Now let's look at verse 23. Let's start in 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what do we have here yet again? If you want to persevere, if you want to persevere not just in the faith, but in love and in good works, you need to not neglect the regular assembly of the saints. You need to meet with the saints so that we can, with one another, encourage and exhort one another to love and good works. You see how vital our Christian walk is that we spend time with fellow believers. The last place you want to be if you're lost in the wilderness is alone. You don't want to be alone. We need the communion of saints. And that's what Jonathan symbolized for us in David. He encouraged and lifted David up. And I want us to turn back to 1 Samuel. Before we move on to our next point, I think it would be helpful to notice how specifically did Jonathan encourage David. We've seen from Hebrews what that looks like to encourage one another. How did Jonathan do it? I think it's important for us not just to see that he encouraged David. But how did he encourage David? Let's look again at verses 16 and 18, and then I'll discuss them. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. I'm kind of breaking this into two related parts. You know what was the first way that Jonathan was encouraging to David? He was optimistic. Pretty simple. He was positive. (laughs) I can imagine there wasn't a whole lot of optimism in David's camp at this point. I can imagine David probably hasn't experienced a whole lot of optimism over this entire ordeal. I think David's been living in a fearful pessimistic place. And one of the most important things he needed is he needed someone to come along and not be a pessimist with him. He needed someone to come along and say, David, why are you afraid? I'm not afraid. You're afraid? He, he was optimistic. This was an important influence on David. But I want us to see this though. This was not just some blind optimism. It wasn't just wishful thinking. Right? We, we have no evidence that, that he tried to sugarcoat the situation. Right? Jonathan just didn't show up just to be optimistic for the sake of being optimistic. He didn't show up and say, you know, you really, if you think about it, it's not so bad. 
You know, he didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, you know what, Jonathan, you should just be great, or forgive me, you know what, David, you should just be grateful for what you do have. Don't you know there are kids in Africa starving to death right now? He was optimistic. He was hopeful, but it was reasoned optimism. It was grounded in something. And what was it grounded in? Well, we've been seeing this with Jonathan David time and time again. It was grounded in the covenant they made with God. In other words, it was grounded in the promises and character of God. Jonathan, the way he encouraged David was by being optimistic and his optimism was reasoned because what he did is he took David's head, metaphorically, he grabbed his head and he forced him to stop looking at his circumstances and he turned his eyes towards God. Who is the God we serve? What promises has God given to us? If you focus on who God is and what he has promised to you, you don't need to let your circumstances bother you so much. He focused David's soul and attention on the stronghold of the Lord their God. They lifted their eyes towards heaven. I look to the hills and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So this was not wishful thinking. This was not sugarcoating. But he had reason to be hopeful because of the promises of God. And I submit to you that I think all of us, sometimes we're Jonathan, but sometimes we're David. All of us, we really need Jonathans in our lives to keep us from falling into a pessimistic Christianity. And this has been, let me just lay my cards out on the table. This has been an emphasis of my preaching for the last year and a half. Our circumstances in this country have not been good. And we don't need to sugarcoat that. We don't need to pretend like everything's okay. And like anyone who's concerned about what's happening is a conspiracy theorist. We don't need to pretend that. We don't have to downplay the severity of the difficult circumstances we're living in. Could they be worse? Yes. Do other Christians have it worse? Yes. Does that mean it's not hard? Does that mean it's not scary? No. Our circumstances are bad. And so I have been intentionally... Not, not cramming things into the text, but where the text gives permission in leeway, trying to bring out a more hopeful, optimistic approach to what's happening to us today. I've been trying to make my sermons be like a Jonathan in your life to remind you that, yes, things don't look good right now. And yes, our culture and our country really does seem to be on the brink of falling into, into restoration or maybe into something really bad. Like The circumstances are really not good. But I believe we have a reasoned optimism that can be found. We have a word from God. We have a God who has given us promises for us, for his church, for the future. We have promised that the Holy Spirit is effectual, that the word of God is effectual, that the gospel is powerful, that the spirit is... I believe we have so many promises about who God is and what he's accomplishing and what he will accomplish to take our eyes off of our circumstances for just a moment and look to God and tell one another, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah, things are bad, but God is good. God is good. I'm not trying to delegitimize your concerns or trivialize them, but I do think we have reason to be hopeful. We have reason to have a Jonathanic optimism, if you will. Yeah, things are bad, but God is good. God is big. How do we get through this life? How do we get through the wilderness? We need the communion of saints. We need to encourage one another regularly to love and faith and good works. That's how we get out of this wilderness. And all related to that is our last point. Point number three. 
How do we find this optimism? How can we possibly do that? What are one of the promises we have from the Word of God? Well, that leads us into survival technique number three. Trust the providence of God. You have to obey the Word of God. You have to commune with the saints. And you need to trust the providence of God. One other thing anyone who's examined survival stories would tell you is the worst thing you can do in a survival situation is panic. The worst thing to do is to panic. When you panic, you lose all reason, you lose all will. You need to remain calm. You cannot panic. That's what they tell you, right, when you fly in an airplane, you know, safety, like, remain calm. The whole plane's going down and you just tighten your seatbelt, put your mask on, put your head between your hands. Remain calm, it's all okay. You need to remain calm. That's how we survive. How can we not panic in a world such as ours? And I'm not just talking about our current circumstances. I'm just talking about the world at large, which was filled with sin and death and sickness. How could we not panic? The world's on fire. I have every reason to be panicked. But if we panic, we die in the wilderness. How do we remain calm? We need to trust that God is in control. We need to trust the providence of God, that He is in total, absolute control of our destinies. Here's where I get this from. You notice right before David is captured, right? The text is, it's like a movie. It's really building up. They're on the same mountain. They're on the other side. The text, David is hurrying, hurrying. And here comes Saul. Here comes his army. And they're ready to get David. All hope is lost. The end is near. Doom and gloom. And just suddenly out of nowhere, just so happens, a messenger shows up at just the right moment. Says, Saul, we've got an emergency. The Philistines just so happened to decide to start attacking right as you left for searching David. And so Saul has to abandon the search. Let me ask you a really important but very rhetorical question. Did David get lucky? Was this coincidence? Was God up in heaven going, Oh, phew, man, that was a close call. Wow. No, the text is obviously implying something here. The text is implying that God is in so much control over David and Saul and their circumstances that God was able to maneuver the situation wherein someone comes in at the last second with an emergency and pulls the army away. That was God's doing. God did that. David didn't get lucky. I love the way Calvin comments on this very eloquently. This is kind of a long quote. And I know sometimes when you quote some of these more ancient writers and the way they're translated, it can be hard to follow some of the vocabulary. But I want to read this to you. The mode in which God, by the curb of his providence turns events in whatever direction he pleases will, repeat, will appear from this remarkable example. At the very same moment when David was discovered in the wilderness of Maon, the Philistines make an inroad into the country and Saul is forced to depart. If God, in order to provide for the safety of his servant, through this obstacle in the way of Saul, we surely cannot say even though the Philistines took up arms contrary to human expectations, that this happened by chance. What seems to us contingent, faith will recognize as the secret 
impulse of God. The reason is not always equally apparent, but we ought undoubtedly to hold that all the changes which take place in the world are produced by the secret agency of the hand of God. God is in control over David's circumstances. Saul is not. The Philistines are not. God is in control. And if you think I'm speculating, if, if you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, just read with me very quickly verse 14 and give an account for it. What does verse 14 say? And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. What is this text implying? Who is ultimately responsible for whether Saul catches David? God. Saul's doing his thing. He's trying. But if Saul were to have caught David, then the text would say not that Saul is the one who made David fall into his hand. The text would have read, God gave David to Saul's hand. David has been protected because God is in control. And by the way, this is why I made a joke about this during Sunday school, but I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. It's in my notes. So, This is why I'm a Calvinist. I, this is why I love our non-Calvinistic brothers and sisters. I love our Arminian brothers and sisters. But I just do not believe that their worldview can truly account for this event. People whose perspective of God is that he's in control of the weather and our physical bodies. But God doesn't control the human will. Or he can't at least, right? Because he's a gentleman. And he's given us free will. And if he were to make us do things, then that wouldn't be free. And we have free. And we have free will. So God can't do... So they have this world in which God is sort of micromanaging everything but the hearts and decisions of men. Because, after all, we have to have free will. And if that's your worldview, if that's your perspective, then, then shout to the Lord, David did get lucky. Right? Who ultimately decided that the Philistines would attack at just the right time? The Philistines. God didn't make them attack. God can't make anyone do anything. They just chose of their own free will to do that. And then the messenger just happened to get word at just the right moment and go on course and find Saul at just the right speed and then approach Saul at just the right time. And then Saul had to make the right decision because Saul could have said, he's an evil man. He could have said, forget him, I won David. God is getting lucky every step. Oh, I'm really glad the Philistines chose to go. I see. Oh, okay. I'm really glad he's running at this pace. This is really good. Oh, I'm glad he told Saul. Oh, Saul made the right. Yes, yes, yes. Where's the comfort in that? Where's the hope in that? No, what the text is implying, undoubtedly, this is mysterious. I'm not pretending like it's not mysterious. I'm not pretending like there aren't huge philosophical questions that we could talk about. But for the purpose of this sermon, for the purpose of finding encouragement, we need to know that God was in some way secretly in control of this. God protected David. He didn't get lucky. Now, you could lecture this to David, and you know what David would say? I'll be honest, it doesn't really feel like God's in that much control. I mean, I'm on the beaches of the Dead Sea right now. I'm still losing. I'm still on the run. God's secret hand of providence doesn't always feel good. It's, it's, it's very hard to look at the world around us and think, this is God's plan, Really? And as Calvin said, like we don't, we can't always figure out. The, the, he says the reason is not always equally apparent. I, 
Yeah, we don't know. But we have this confidence that goes beyond our doubts and our questions. And this confidence is just, I do believe that a good and loving God is in control of my situation. So when you're lost, when you feel lost in the wilderness, don't panic. You're right where God wants you to be. And he's in control. And he will not abandon you. He will not forsaken you. He will not turn his back on you. So how do we survive in the wilderness? First, obey the word of God. Even when it seems counterintuitive, obey God's word. Commune with the saints. Spend time with each other. Encourage one each other. Lift each other up and trust that God is in control. Let us conclude just briefly with Psalm 54. David wrote this psalm after the Ziphites tried to betray him. So let's just conclude with David's reflections after being betrayed for the second time. Psalm chapter 54. This will be a good encouraging word for us to end on. Psalm 54, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David, when the Ziphites went out and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Beginning in verse 1. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies.